I love the Word of God. It is the most fantastic 66-book library in the universe, and God has given it to us to teach us so many things that we want to know the whole counsel of God. Right. I have been working through verse by verse in the book of Romans, which is the New Testament epistle of the gospel of the grace of God. You know that. But at the same time, there's a book in the Bible called Daniel, and it has value for us as well. I hope this will build your faith. It will teach you that the vanity of life, though you were the greatest on earth, you can still die at 32 years and 8 months, miserable, in your stupor from a drunken party the night before. Let's learn as many things as we can in a few minutes. I have 90 slides. I have 40 minutes. I get 30 seconds apiece, and I don't get to tell stories. And I have lots of stories from over 100 hours of reading and research, putting these 90 slides together. I hope that it's beneficial to you, and I hope the young men in this church will understand the book of Daniel so they cannot be led astray. Alexander the Great, the name the world gives him. There's a a statue on top of his sarcophagus. There's what he looked like. There's another picture of his facial expression. Why do we study Alexander? Because we want to remember that God sets up kings and he removes them. We want to have our faith built by fulfilled prophecy because in this passage right here, John 13, 19, one of many in both Testaments, Jesus said, I tell you these things before they come to pass so that when they come to pass, you will believe that I am he. This is the God of heaven. He wants to prove that he is the only God because he's the only one that can tell things in advance. We want to learn an exciting prophecy from the book of Daniel that might encourage you to read the book of Daniel and realize Daniel is exciting. We want to be saved from prophetic confusion and heresies. There are two large denominations that have grown rapidly in the last 150 years, and it's because of their misunderstanding of Daniel that puts them in gross error. They are the Seventh-day Adventists and the Jehovah's Witnesses, The Jehovah's Witnesses are nothing but a little small group of disgruntled Seventh-day Adventists that went out on their own. They both came out of a misunderstanding of Daniel chapter 8. And I've been over that before in a sermon and document that's on the website entitled The 2300 Days of Daniel. We want to see the vanity and vexation of what the world calls one of their greatest men ever. And we want to know that the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. What's wrong today? Fools and scorners mock the Bible as boring. But the Bible isn't boring. They just haven't read it. They haven't studied it. Daniel's prophecies confuse and deceive many. They're ever learning but never able to find the truth. They have more opportunity today with greater ease of understanding the things that are in Daniel than ever before. But they're not able to come to a knowledge of the truth. There is far less understanding about what the Bible has to say about Alexander the Great and the fulfilled prophecies in Daniel today than there was a hundred years ago, than there was a hundred years before that. It's very discouraging. Men fear and worry about political change, but the Lord's in charge of political change. We can trust in Him. And brethren, we are bound to give thanks always for truth. We should celebrate as Ezra and Nehemiah did with the people of Israel that they understood the words of the book of God in Nehemiah. Why study Alexander? Listen to this verse from Daniel 2.44. In the days of these kings, we're going to learn about some of these kings, starting with Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, then Rome, 
In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. The Babylonian kingdom was left to the Persians. The Persians was left to the Greeks. The Greeks was left to the Romans. The Lord Jesus Christ has them all. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. A kingdom set up by the God of heaven is what the New Testament calls the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Set up in the days of these kings. Not set up in the future. Set up in the days of the rapid succession of Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. What made Alexander great? The greatest military general ever. No one ever covered so much ground, conquered so many enemies, so many, so in, superior to him in numbers than did Alexander in just three years. Right. Conquered a dominant empire by the age of 30. He had exceptional ca- package of traits and circumstances. A very ambitious, driven military leader of Greece and Macedonia named Philip II was his father. He had a mother that convinced him from the moment he was born of his destiny to be a leader of the world. That is because of the prince of Grecia that was at work in that nation. But he had a package of traits, zeal, fearlessness, courage, leadership, charisma in a package. You've never met nor read about anyone like him. Would automatically win the loyalty of all of his soldiers to follow him anywhere except One place, and we'll find out about that. He's been romanticized by the Greeks and the Europeans. Romanticized means not to tell the complete truth in order to present a fairy tale image. Oliver Stone, when he made Alexander the Great the movie in the last few years, wanted to film it in Greece, but Greece wouldn't let him because Oliver Stone was going to let the truth come out that Alexander the Great was a sodomite, and the Greeks didn't want their national hero to be a very nice boy. True story. Had to film it in another nation. He furthered his own reputation by carefully guarding what came out about him and calling himself the great and calling himself divine. He Hellenized the world, meaning he spread Greek culture to the world. There's a whole sermon or a half a sermon in that subject alone by God creating a universal language for the writing of the New Testament and its dispersion throughout the known world in the Greek language. Before Alexander, let's get a picture of history. Let's go back to 514 B.C., 514 years before the Lord Jesus Christ was born. Nebuchadnezzar I came into power in the Babylonian Empire, defeated the Assyrians and ruled the world. You can read about it in the book of Daniel and other places in the Bible. He is called God's servant. He is called the King of Kings. As far as earth is concerned, God called him the King of Kings. Darius and Cyrus, though, overthrew his grandson Belshazzar and took the city of Babylon in one night, as we've studied before, a few years later. In between these two dates here, we have the Jews from Judea captive in Babylon, and Daniel was there in between those years. And then Cyrus the Persian, right here, gave a decree for the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their city and temple. In 408 B.C., 50 years later, there was a huge battle in Greece where Darius, another Darius, invaded Greece with an army, 
the father of Xerxes, and the, a, a large army was defeated, came home, and his son Xerxes then, ten years later, raises the largest army and navy ever seen in the history of the world by far. Five million men marched and went on 12,000 ships across the Mediterranean from the Persian Empire. The Bible is going to tell us about these events. See, I have to tell you these first because most of you weren't paying attention as well as you should have in 6th grade, 8th grade, 10th grade, and freshman history. So we got to go over this, and then you're going to see the Bible fall into place as it tells about these events. The largest army and navy... There was shame for the Persians at Thermopylae, where a few Greeks killed thousands of Persians in a narrow pass. By deception and betrayal, by a foolish Greek, Xerxes was able to gain the upper hand. The Greeks had already evacuated Athens, but he burned it. And that was seared into the memory of the Greeks. And they would never forget it, and it's what drove Alexander's father and what drove Alexander, and it was part of what the prince of Grecia used to stir up that nation. Alexander timeline. You know, if we go back, you can see that Xerxes was defeated in Greece eventually and desecrated Athens about 50 years before Alexander was born to Philip, king of Macedon. The Greek states were city-states. There were many of them. You've heard of Sparta and Thessaly. Not Thessalonica. Those are two different cities. And Philippi is later named after Philip II here. But this was the father of Alexander the Great. He was taught to hate Persia's great king. That's Xerxes who raised that huge army and desecrated Athens. He was tutored by Aristotle beginning at 12. He had a horse named Bucephalus, the most well-known horse in the annals of Military history, a huge horse. He met at 13 years of age when a horse dealer from Thessaly came and offered to sell it to his father, Philip. It was in a public square. Philip said, I don't want that horse. He's too dangerous. Huge head, huge body. Alexander was 13 years old. He took his coat off, walked over and whispered to the horse and turned him in a half circle, got up on him and said, may I have him? He had put the son's, the horse's face into the sun because he had noticed the prince of Grecia was at work. Right. He had noticed that the horse was afraid of its shadow. Bucephalus. He died at the Indus River. It carried him 12,000 miles in his battles. But anyway, who cares? Hey, I told a story and now I'm behind. At the age of 16, when Philip went out of Macedonia to war, he left his young 16-year-old son in charge. During that time, one of the city-states named Mede, Mede, revolted. He gathered a small army, went and crushed their revolt, and renamed their city that they had called Mede for a long time to Alexandropolis. His first of 30. Before he dies, he will have named 30 cities, Alexandria or Alexandropolis. At the age of 18, he led a furious charge, which is characteristic of him, because he was fearless and possessed of a spirit of absolute fury against military opponents. 
in a battle with his dad, he went at the Theban best from Thebes and aided and, and had contributed a large part to that military victory. His timeline, 336, he's 20 years old, his fa- father was assassinated. There's so much murder, mayhem, adultery, sodomy, betrayal in the annals of Persian and Greek history. It's enough to make you sick. But it's part of the spirits that were behind them. When a spirit of the devil is in a man or in a people, they will show it by their irrational, wicked behavior. The spirit of lying and the spirit of murder. And the spirit of rage. But anyway, at 20, he's king of the best army in the world, though by far the smallest. The most disciplined troops, the best military tactics, had been gained by Philip and taught to his son. This is all well known in military history. He subdues the Greek states and local enemies so that he won't have any problems in his backside, and he's going to fulfill the dream of all Greeks to go and wreak vengeance on Persia for what they did under Xerxes 70 years earlier. At 22, he begins the campaign. His first battle is at the River Granicus, just inside Asia Minor. He then takes on Darius III at the Battle of Issus. He goes to Egypt. He's crowned Pharaoh. He defeats Darius III for the final time at Gagamela. Persia is all his. He takes the city of Babylon. He takes Susa, Shushan the palace. He burns Persepolis, the most beautiful city of the Persians. And he prepares for India. He goes and takes on the Indians at the Indus River and has a huge battle here at the Hedaspes River. He came home and made it home just in time to get to Babylon so that he could die at the age of 32 after a drinking party. The exact cause, still unknown, but he would be in 36-hour stupors from because he was a drunkard. It's, it's amazing that a man could defeat such enemies and such superior odds and yet fall victim to a bottle and be unable to stop his drinking. In just a few years, notice the difference between these two dates. In just a few years, his two sons, his wife was pregnant when he died, his wives, his half-brother Philip III, and his mother were all murdered in six years. There was no posterity left to him whatsoever. He was cut off of the earth, plucked up by the God of heaven, because the God of heaven was through with them. And the empire was divided to his four generals. This is what it looks like. Here's one general, Seleucus, got Persia and Syria. Let me note right here is Jerusalem. Ptolemy, another general, got Egypt to the south. Lysimachus, got Asia Minor. Cassander, got Greece. The four winds of the Greek empire. Here is a map of the Middle East. Here's Macedonia up here. I hope you can see it. I suggest that you sit close to the front. Here's his campaign. The first battle is right here. These are the greatest battles. We're going to quickly look at a few of his battles. This is at the River Granicus. He then takes care of Asia Minor, winning all these cities over to loyalty to him and away from Persia. The second battle is fought right here, though it is not highlighted on this map that has a mistake, and that is the Battle of Issus. He then comes down the coast because he must secure the coast because he does not have a powerful navy, so he's got to secure all the ports so that no navy can come in and get him on his backside. He comes to Egypt, 
founds Alexandria. He's crowned Pharaoh. He makes his way back past Jerusalem. There is nothing but tradition for a visit to Jerusalem where he told the high priest of Jerusalem, this is only tradition and I'm only going to take 30 seconds. He met the high priest of Jerusalem and he told him, you may keep your religion and you may keep all that you do in Jerusalem because before I embarked on this campaign, I was told by your God that I would be successful. It's not in the Bible. He then meets Darius III in the plains of Babylon, the plains of Shinar, the plains of modern-day northern Iraq, for the decisive battle of overthrowing the Persians. He comes and takes Babylon. He takes Shushan. He takes their great city, Persepolis. And then he goes through this vast territory of Afghanistan and the other stands that are over there as he works toward Pakistan. This route is, is terribly long. 12,000 miles in five years. Go home and divide that and then do it by foot. Until he comes to the Indus River here and takes the Indians on, his men will go no further. They do not want to punch through India to the great ocean that they thought was over there. So they come down the Indus River, they go home, and he dies in Babylon right here. I hope that gives you a little bit of a picture. This is the Mediterranean Sea. This is the Black Sea. This is the Caspian Sea. What was battle like for Greeks? The Greek phalanx. The most potent weapon in the, mili- in, in the world's militaries at that time. Those spears are approximately 17 to 20 feet long. They weighed 12 to 15 pounds. I'll show you a picture in a moment. The first four lines all have them pointed forward. Their shields are locked together. The shield hung around their neck because they had to use both hands on something that was 18 feet long and weighed 12 pounds. It was hooked to the shield next. It covered their left half of their body and the right half of the body of the next one. They stood next to each other and they marched forward. They did not run. They did not get disorganized. And an opposing army could not allow them to split their army. And an opposing army was not disciplined like this, but was running at them. And they would just be impaled on this multitude of Spears, you've got to understand that one spear is sticking out 16 feet, the next one is sticking out 14, 12, 10, 8, and the rest are ready to drop into place if a man falls. The Greek phalanx. You say, well, what about their sides? They were protected by light cavalry. Where was Alexander? Heavy cavalry at the front in a diamond-shaped wedge, plowing into the enemy wherever he saw weakness, and the prince of Grecia would give him the wisdom to know exactly where he could hit an opponent's front line and punch through in a couple of hours and defeat opponents ranging from three times his numbers to 25 times his numbers. The Greek military formation. There's a sarissa that was used by the phalanx. There's a normal six-foot man holding it. 13 to 21 feet long. 12 to 15 pounds, the butt was pointed. So if they were being charged by elephants in India, they would just drop that butt into the ground and let that poor little six-ton animal impale itself on an 18-foot thermometer. Do you know what happened when you met Persians that only had eight-foot spears? They were at a slight disadvantage. We have boxing matches today where they love to tell you that one man has a 36-inch reach or a 60-inch reach, and the other boxer has a 62-inch reach. Well, what if an army has a 16-foot reach and the other army has a 6-foot reach with an 8-foot spear? You're in trouble. 
What if you're going to try those spears with a sword? The Battle of Granicus. Let's look at a few of his big battles. Alexander, this is his first battle. He's 22 years old. He meets the Persian satraps. Those are the provincial governors. Darius III was not here. They did not consider him enough of a threat yet. He crosses with 40,000 men. His his army was never bigger than 40,000 men. Macedonians, very loyal to him. They would follow him anywhere except deeper into India after facing war elephants. But the war elephants killed far more Indians than it did Macedonians because they threw so many javelins and darts at them that the enraged animals, not killed, darts or javelins don't kill elephants. The enraged animals would turn around and stampede their own army. The poor Persians, and this is the prince of Grecia helping. you got to read it. They made a terrible mistake, and Alexander knew it in one second. After a day's march, when they crested a hill at the Granicus River and saw the Persians encamped on the opposite side on a steep bank overlooking the river, he knew in one second he had the battle. Three to one odds. They're on the high ground across the river because they put their cavalry on that bank and a man can't fight when he's on the back of a horse because he can't move. Cavalry is for charging. It's not for being mobile. Anyway, that's I'm getting ahead of myself. He was warned to plan before attacking. Though he had finished a day's march, he attacked right then. Across the river, up the bank, and into the Persians with the fury of a man possessed. Everyone knows about it. His temperament has been written about in many pages by historians favorable to Greece and not favorable to Greece. His furious charge broke through and scattered the Persians. 129 Greeks, thousands of Persians, dead after the first battle. Battle of Granicus. Here's Macedonia and Pella. You probably can't see Pella in the back of the room. That's where Alexander was born. He had to come due west, keep these things in mind, and cross the Hellespont right here. The separation between Europe and Asia, one of the most important bodies of water in the world. It's a strait that connects the Aegean Sea with the Black Sea. This is the Sea of Marma that leads to the Black Sea. You can see Athens down here. You can see Sparta. Corinth is in here. Bible towns. Philippi is up here. He went due west and came to the great division between Europe and Asia. And that was the line in the sand for the Persians. He crossed over because he was going after Darius. The Battle of Granicus. Here's that division leading up here to the Black Sea. Alexander came and crossed, marched his men. And if you can see in the back, here's the battle at the river Granicus. The Persians are on the east. Alexander is on the west. This is what it looks like. He had thousands of Greek mercenaries in the back. The Persians didn't trust them. If they'd have put the Greek mercenaries at the front with the man controlling this cavalry, Memnon, a man from Rhodes, a traitor to Greece, he'd have repelled Alexander. The Macedonians could outfight several Persians, but they put him in the back because they didn't trust him. Here's the cavalry up on a bank over a river, unable to move. You're sitting on a horse. What can you do? They're not going to jump off the bank. They'd all break their legs. They're just waiting up there. They can't do anything. Alexander, in a second, approaches, splits his men up, 
Parmenian, who's a 60-year-old battle veteran of his father, is over on the left side always fighting the same formation. This is Alexander right here, his famous companions, the best heavy cavalry in the world. They line up this way. He spreads, he spreads out to the right. They extend their flanks because they don't want to get circled. As soon as they spread their flanks, he sees a weakness. He charges across the front of the line at that weakness through the water, up the muddy bank. Horses are tripping and falling. They claw their way up to the top. He engages two of the leaders right off the bat. Listen, the man is as visible as can be. He has white plumes of feathers coming out two feet in the air. He's got the shiniest armor on. They all know it's Alexander. Two of their best, kings, kings of provinces, governors of provinces, come after him. He and his bodyguards kill them both. And in a couple of hours, 129 Greek dead, thousands of Persians dead, and the mercenaries, he surrounded them and killed 10,000 down to 2,000 and sent the 2,000 home to work in the mines. The first battle. These are words that you want to remember because when the Bible gives you descriptive phrases, you're going to know what they mean because they're going to fall into place. This information is available to all. This is not one historian nor ten. This is the way Alexander conquered the world. The Battle of Issus, this is the second battle. A year later, he takes all of Asia Minor, gets all the city-states loyal to him. Darius brings a large army from Babylon. Historians vary from a hundred to 600,000. The small numbers are always modern historians who will not allow that they could have put an army in the field of 600,000 men. There's two reasons. Number one, no one in modern times has ever done it. Number two, they don't want to believe the Bible and the numbers that are found in the Bible. Amen. So they take Herodotus and others, who, historians that were living at the time, some favorable, some unfavorable to Greece, that describe the number of men in the armies. They are written in the inscriptions of some of these kings about their armies. But modern men have never seen an army in the field of over a 100,000 men at one time. So they can't imagine it. So they run it down. But all the old historians, around 600,000 and up. And twenty to 40,000 cavalry. Darius flanked Alexander. Didn't make, a, didn't make a bit of difference. Because Darius chose too small of a battle area for that big of an army. Alexander took his heavy cavalry right at Darius. Darius had the heart of a woman compared to Alexander the Great. As soon as he saw that gold chariot with gold armor in the middle of the Persian army, he drove his wedge-shaped heavy cavalry right through the front lines. As soon as, as soon as Darius saw that Alexander had made, was making progress through the front lines, he turns that gold chariot around and runs for his life, dumps it, to grab a lighter chariot because horses have trouble hauling hundreds of pounds of gold, he leaves his mother, he leaves his wife, and he leaves his sons in a tent, his chariot, his bow, and his mantle. Yeah, okay, that's down here. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. The next battle, two years later, he takes all of what's called Palestine and he takes Egypt. Darius III raises the largest army, a million men. He chooses a flat area in northern Iraq that will be to the advantage of his chariots and men. Alexander, same formation that you saw earlier, went 30 degrees, 45 degrees right. He just kept going right, leaving his phalanxes until he spread a million men 
thin enough that he could dart back again and drive through the thin front. Because these men that counted on numbers, did they counted on having a solid front. But that solid front is thinned down in depth the wider you make it, even if it's a million men. It's, anyway, it's exciting to read about it. You're going you're gonna to see how it falls into place with what the Bible says about him. Once thinned, companion cavalry broke through it. Darius saw them coming. He runs away again. Now, the first time at Issus, Alexander chased him until dark. But it's hard to find people in the dark without headlights. And so he lost him that time. But two years later, here at Gagamela, or Arbella, the battle's known under both names, he chased him 400 miles in 11 days. And the men that were with him assassinated him and left him in a wagon because they were tired of running 400 miles from the madman behind them. And so he found him, sent him home to his mother, and gave him a royal burial in Persepolis. The Battle of Hedaspes in India. Alexander reached the Pakistan-Indian border. His opponent had cavalry and elephants. It was the most difficult battle for the Greeks. They won, but his men didn't want any more of India. They mutinied. Now, there was an arrangement at all times that they would agree unanimously about what they were going to do. But this time it was Alexander against the army, and Alexander had to submit because they were not going to go further. They wanted to go home. And so they came down the Indus and went back to Babylon. What about Tyre? Okay, between the Battle of Issus, remember when he's securing all the ports? What was the wealthiest port in the world at that time? Tyre. The Bible has chapters and chapters about Tyre. Remember, David and Solomon were friends with a man named Hiram, who was the king of Tyre, because he provided them building materials for the temple and their personal houses. Tyre was a very great city in the Bible, incredibly rich. It had an island set about a half to three-quarters of a mile offshore where the, uh, there was part of the city, and part of the city was on the, the mainland, and it had two natural ports that were just wonderful. You're going to see a diagram in a moment. The great city of Carthage, that was just a colony of Tyre. Tyre was the maritime, that means related to the seas, equivalent of Babylon. And so there's so much of it in the Bible. The Bible condemns its pride, and it condemns its abuse of the church of God, of Israel. Because when Nebuchadnezzar came in and raised our A-Z-E-D, burned and looted, and desecrated Jerusalem, they laughed at it. And the Lord took note of that, and it's written in the Bible. So Nebuchadnezzar came and did that to Tyre. He besieged the city for 13 years. Alexander besieged it for seven months. That's a long time for Alexander, and it enraged him. Normally when he conquered a city, he would let them have their freedom. He would free them from Persia and expect their loyalty. He killed this city down to a few thousand and shipped them off as slaves, sold them as slaves. He crucified 2,000 on the beaches facing the city. What does the Bible say about Tyre? They shall destroy the walls of Tyrus. It was an island. It had a rock wall that was at the edge of the sea that went up 150 feet. That is a 15-story building around the island. You are in the water on a boat. You try to thrust against a stone wall that high. There's things falling on you while you're trying to do it. But you have no leverage. And it's three three quarters of a mile from shore. They shall destroy the walls of Tyrus. 
They're going to break down her towers. I will scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. He's going to smooth her out until there's nothing left, the Lord says. They shall lay thy stones, thy timber, and thy dust in the midst of the water. I will make thee like the top of a rock. This is a repetition. These verses are all from one chapter. There's chapters about Tyre. Thou shalt be a place to spread nets upon. Thou shalt be built no more. For I, the Lord, have spoken it, saith the Lord God. This is what the Lord said about Tyre. What happened? Here it is. Here's the city of Tyre and the old Tyre. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the old Tyre here. So Alexander approaches and tells them to submit. They defy him. What in the world is he going to do? Here's their one natural harbor called the South Harbor. Here's the North Harbor. Can you understand why that's, why that city island was rich? Look at those two natural harbors. Protected from the, the, the winds and waves of the Mediterranean. Look at that little protected harbor on both sides facing the land. Anyway, it was wonderful. What did he do? He scraped his army in seven months scraped all the rubble that Nebuchadnezzar had left here and built a causeway engineered by his engineers. He built a road out there that he could take his chariots, his war machines, and his catapults out, and he beat that wall down just like Ezekiel 26 said he would. It took him seven months, but because it took him seven months, no one got out of there mercifully. This is a great story fulfilled in the Bible. This is a causeway, otherwise called a mole, in this map called a dam that he built out there. Because, because that broke the flow of water flowing through here today, silt is gathered, and so this is all filled in. But this is still visible, the road that he built out there. Alexander waxed very great. He led a few Macedonians to rule the world. He overthrew Persia and its great king. His whole life, he was told that the king of Persia was the great king. Xerxes. He never lost a battle. He dominated the earth. He had the wealth and submission of the world. He reached the zenith of his kingdom in 324 B.C. He died at 32, and four generals divided his empire after fighting for a number of years. Let's now go to the book of Daniel. That was a little short history of Alexander the Great, his four greatest battles, his temperament, where he came from, his father, his mother, his end, his accomplishments, 40,000 against a million, 40,000 against 600,000, 40,000 against 120,000, 40,000 against thousands and thousands of Indians. It didn't matter. Bring your war elephants. Bring your Persian chariots with swords coming out the axles on both sides that you've probably seen on movies. They had them. The, Pers- the Macedonians were trained. One of those chariots would approach their phalanx. Remember, a phalanx never breaks. That man's just thinking about chewing them apart. The, the phalanx steps aside. The chariot goes right on in. Horses don't run in to a ray of spears staring them at the eyeball level. The chariot would get inside the ranks of the phalanx and stop because the horses were not going to charge a wall of steel facing them. And as soon as it stopped, poor chariot driver, history. The book of Daniel, it was written 500 or 450 B.C., 100 years before Alexander was born. Do you know that in Daniel, at the beginning of every chapter, he tells you when he wrote it? When he got that vision from the Lord? He'll tell you what year of what king he got that vision. 
Skeptics are forced to give a later date for Daniel. They want Daniel written in, say, 200 B.C. Because what Daniel says is just too close to the truth. That's from the lips of a skeptic or a scorner. It's too detailed for speculation. This is God foretelling the future. It's perfectly accurate in advance. The book of Daniel is a fabulous book for all ages. It's got 12 chapters. Six of those chapters are stories that we often say are for children, but they're great for adults. And six of those chapters are full of prophecies about things to come from Daniel's point in time. Prophecy power. Jesus said to read and understand Matthew. Where did he say that? He said that in Matthew 24 and verse 15. Read and understand Daniel, and you'll know what I'm talking about in Matthew 24. Without some history, Daniel's a closed book. If you just try to go read Daniel, you won't have a clue what you're looking at. You'll end up like William Miller of the Seventh-day Adventists and Charles Taze Russell of the Jehovah's Witnesses and think that Jesus is coming back in 1844. Because that's what you get with a Bible and a concordance, and you don't know any history. Because if you don't know any history, you can't put the time frame on the prophecies that God specifically and clearly gave. If Daniel's cloudy, you know, once this is in place, then this is in place. Daniel's cloudy, you'll teach anything. Because you can come up with anything from the book of Daniel if you don't know a little bit of history. Forget Revelation. You need Daniel first. Daniel will open up chapters of Revelation if you'll learn Daniel. Let's go to Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a great image. Daniel told the dream and its interpretation. Chris told us about that two weeks ago. God reveals secrets. It was about four world empires, and it was about the kingdom of Jesus Christ destroying all of them. Is this what it looked like? Of course. This is Nebuchadnezzar's image. The head's made of what material? The chest? The loins? The legs? The feet? Iron and clay. That's something like what Nebuchadnezzar saw that Daniel explained to him. Daniel told him what vision he had, and Daniel told him what it meant. In Daniel chapter 2, as Daniel's explaining that image, he first of all identifies Nebuchadnezzar, O king, thou art the head of gold. Then he does this. After thee. Notice the time frame. If you just read the Bible, you can know that the prophecy is not for the future, for us, it was for the future for Nebuchadnezzar. It's the ancient past for us. After thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. What kingdom rose up after the Babylonians? Persians. Now, if you'd never read anything about history, you wouldn't know that. She'd so be totally lost. And all the Bible is is a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. But it's not. It's wonderful world history in advance. Because the Persians were inferior to Nebuchadnezzar. Another third kingdom of brass. And an interesting thing about that, which shall rule, which shall bear rule over all the earth. What kingdom came after the Persians? The Greece, the Greek kingdom, which shall bear rule over all the earth. The fourth kingdom is Rome. Be strong as iron and so forth. And it's going to subdue the ones before it. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar's image, the gold stands for? Babylon. Next? Persia. It was a... Oh, boy, folks. Okay, thank you, Charlie. I won't. That was a dual kingdom, wasn't it? What's it referred to some of the times in the Bible? Medo-Persia, because it was the Medes joining with the Persians to defeat the Babylonians. 
The bronze, what empire? Greece. Iron and clay? Rome. A great stone was cut out without hands, and it came down and crushed the image, and that is the kingdom of? Or the kingdom of the God of heaven. Isn't that wonderful? That's world history to the end. And then, it, and then the whole world is history. Because Jesus Christ shall reign forever and ever, and we shall be with Him forever and ever. And all these men that rule these kingdoms will be in hell. There's the four empires again. Babylon, Media, Media Persia, Greece, and Rome. The kingdom of the God of heaven. The greatest rulers of those kingdoms, Nebuchadnezzar, that God said was the head of gold. Xerxes, the richest king of the Persians. Alexander the Great, the only king of the Greek empire. And Caesar Augustus of the Roman. Which shall bear rule over all the earth is what Daniel 2.39 told us. I'm so glad that it's dark enough in here that I can't see the clock in the back. I'm just going to keep cranking. You try to keep listening. And this will all be available on the website tomorrow for you to look at and check out. Which shall bear rule over all the earth. Now we've already learned a little bit about Alexander, enough to know he conquered the known world. Now this is a statement made about the third empire. We know what the first one was, it was Babylon. We know what the second one was because it's the one that defeated Babylon that let the Jews go home. It's Persia. We know what comes after Persia, it's the Greeks. Now there's more, but we already know that. And so when it says this about the third empire, it's talking about Alexander the Great's rule. He built an Alexandria in Egypt. He built one in India and about 30 more. He ruled the world's greatest empire at 30. And he wept, according to legend. Some historians say he wept for having no more worlds to conquer at the poor age of 30. Which shall bear rule over all the earth. Daniel chapter 2. We've been to Ezekiel 26. How in the world, and why in the world, would all the dust, timbers, and stone of Tyre be put in the midst of the sea? Because Alexander the Great is in Ezekiel 26. What about Daniel chapter 2 when the third kingdom would bear rule over all the earth? Alexander the Great in Daniel chapter 2. The four world empires and their greatest rulers looked like that until, tossing on his bed, Nebuchadnezzar saw this. A stone cut out without hands that filled earth and crushed that image of those world empires. The army of the Lord Jesus Christ. What numbers does he have in his army? Let's talk about the phalanx of angels. Give me the number. 10,000 times 10,000. That's a hundred million plus thousands of thousands. Then he's got an innumerable company of angels, but then he's got a multitude that no man can number of saints. Praise the God of heaven. Amen. Right there is what Nebuchadnezzar saw. And what Daniel got to tell him was that in the days of these kings, the God of heaven is going to set up a kingdom. And if you go read Luke chapter 3, do you know that it takes several verses to tell you in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar? And it goes on to list all the provincial governments of the Roman Empire so that you can know exactly when John the Baptist burst onto the scene at the Jordan River and said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Amen. And it's been here for 2,000 years. Praise the Lord, we're part of it. And this is one of its outposts right here. Right. 
The great multitude is in heaven, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, after God our Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, reigning at His right hand with a rod of iron and riding a white horse that's dripping with the blood of His enemies. This is the Word of God and what it says about our Savior. And we are sworn to loyalty into His army, and we campaign with Him when we take His oath upon us as Jesus Christ is the Son of God in the waters of baptism. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel dreamed about four beasts. They represented the same four empires. Remember, the third empire was Greece. I'm sorry if my writing just irritates you. I hope that it helps keep your eyes where your ears are. More details were given about Greece in Daniel 7, especially in this one verse that's all about the third empire. This is what it looks like. This is what maybe, well, sort of. This is, I've been working on drawing. This is what Nebuchadnezzar saw here on the left. And in Daniel chapter 7, the first beast that came up was a lion, Babylon. The second beast was a bear. It rose up on one side, meaning that the Medes got it started and the Persians were the ones that made it great. And it had three provinces of Babylon in its mouth. The third kingdom, which is what? Is a leopard... With how many heads? Four heads. And how many wings? Four wings. And then the dragon of the Roman Empire. That's Daniel 7. Daniel 7, 6. This is the third animal. After this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. Four wings, four heads, dominion was given to it. Let's read it again. Daniel chapter 7, verse 6. After this I beheld the lion, the bear, and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. I love the Bible. I love the God of heaven, and I love His Word that He's given us. I've already told you enough to know you know exactly what that says. I'm going to go through it to make sure that you know it, but there it is. Well, let's go back. Let's not waste my drawing. Four heads, four wings, a leopard. Like a leopard. What's a leopard known for? Fast as you go, you can go home. Alexander's army was very mobile and fast. He was in places that other his opponents could not figure that he could get men disciplined enough to move that fast. Because it was 40,000 instead of a million. They were loyal Macedonians, not mercenaries of the Persian Empire. They had not lived luxurious lives. They were hardened battle veterans. They could move and cover ground. He would surprise enemies by his speed faster than any army. Just three years he took the Persian Empire. All the way from Alexandria, Egypt to Persepolis. All of Asia Minor. Like a leopard. You know exactly what that means. Does it? If it said like a sloth, like a turtle, would you know what it meant? Okay. Four wings of a fowl. What are wings for? To fly. How many wings do birds have? Two. What if they had four? Could they go really fast? A leopard with four wings is fast. Four heads. What body part, what body part directs the body? The head. The head leads and the head rules the body. The empire would have four rulers. Four generals replaced Alexander. No empire starts that way with four rulers, but Greece ended that way 
with four rulers when Alexander died. In one verse, Daniel 7, verse 6. Now, if you didn't know anything about history, if I hadn't shown you Alexander and how his empire was split up to his four generals and you hadn't read that in history, see, everybody a couple hundred years ago knew that. See, people today want to learn stuff like this. Who discovered Bolivia? See, this is what they're taught in school. Nobody cares about who discovered Bolivia. We don't even really care if there is a Bolivia. These are the events that shaped Europe, that shaped America. But nobody knows about them very much anymore. But if you know about them, you can read in Daniel 7. You're always starting out with Babylon. You know who his successor was, who his successor was. And so it's all given to you with a little bit of history. Dominion was given to it. That was in Daniel 7, 6 as well, was it? Is that hard for you to figure out? Should we go to the next slide? Dominion is absolute power to do anything. Greece dominated all opposition, defeated all opponents. Where did his power come from? It was given by the God of heaven. Dominion was given to it. It included devilish power, as Daniel chapter 10 is going to teach us. Let's go to the next chapter, Daniel chapter 8. It's not four beasts this time. It's, it's a vision of a ram and a he-goat, and the whole chapter is dedicated to it. A ram and he-goat. Now, the Lord feels that you're getting tired figuring stuff out on your own. So in, verse, in verses 20 and 21, do you know what he tells you? He says, to make it easy, children, meaning me, ram equals Persia. He goat, and he puts them by name. He goat equals Greece. Now, who was king at this time? Were they afraid of Greece? Who in the world is Greece? But Greece is coming because the Lord's plan for Greece to come. But this is given to us right there in those words. Somebody read out, uh, if anybody's got a Bible open, Daniel chapter 8, verses 20 and 21. The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Beautiful. Notable horn. This he-goat has a notable horn and a little horn. Alexander is the notable horn, and Antiochus Epiphanes is the little horn that grows up out of the Seleucid kingdom, which was one of his generals. This is the 2,300 days in this chapter that confounds so many. The 2,300 days were the 2,300 literal days that Antiochus Epiphanes profaned the temple in Jerusalem. How's my drawing here? Here's Daniel. If you can't tell, this is a ram if you can't tell. And this is a he-goat. The he-goat is not touching the earth as we're going to read. And he comes with a notable horn between his eyes. And he knocks that ram on the ground and stomps on him. Daniel chapter 8 is one of the easiest chapters in the Bible. Read it. Enjoy it. It's confused many, but it doesn't need to confuse you. Because it gives its meaning, which Eric just read to us in verses 20 through 23. Thank God for the truth you grasp. Do you know how many Seventh-day Adventists there are? How many Jehovah's Witnesses there are? And how many Futurists there are that think Daniel 2, 7, 8, and the other chapters I'm going to refer to? are yet in the future. Daniel 8. As I was considering, behold, a he-goat came up from the west, on the, came up from the west in the face of the whole earth, and touched not the ground. 
And the goat had a notable horn between its eyes. And he came to the ram. We've already been told. What's the ram? Persia. He goat? Greece. Notable horn? Alexander. He came to the ram that had two horns. Why two? Media, Persia. Or Darius, Cyrus. Which I had seen standing before the river and ran unto him in the fury of his power. I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler. What's choler? We're going to read it. We're going to see it in a second. A quick temper to, to enraged anger. Cholerics? What? He was moved with choler against the ram. He smote the ram, break his two horns. He broke the power of media Persia. There was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground, stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. Amen. Praise the God of heaven. Amen. This is so simple. Daniel 8 explained by the angel. We've already done this. Rams, Persia, he-goats, Greece, notable horns, the first king, Alexander, obviously. You can't name another king. Four horns are the weaker successors. Therefore, the notable horn is Alexander, and the little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes. More can be said about the little horn, and I've said it before, because this isn't about the little horn, it's about the notable horn. There are 18 phrases that we just had that are descriptive of Alexander the Great in Daniel chapter 8 in those four verses. Eighteen phrases. Are you willing to go through them with me? Now there they are. Six, twelve, eighteen. Okay, the first one, let's go back and get it, came from the west. Here's Macedonia, right there. What direction is this? Came from the west because he went east. Greece is kind of west of the Persian Empire, isn't it? You can look at it. Are you convinced so far that this might be, it could be, Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire? Oh, it is, because the angel said it was in verses 20 and 21. I'm not trying to be funny about the Word of God. I want to excite you about it, that it does not need to lead to heresies like Jesus coming back in 1844 where you would sell everything you own and get on your rooftop on Mar in March, and then because it didn't happen in March, you'd try it again six months later in white robes. Listen, when I meet the Lord Jesus Christ, I want His white robe, not mine. Amen. It's just... Oh, thank you, Lord. On the face of the whole earth... Did Alexander come up on the face of the whole earth? What part of the known earth at that time didn't he come up on? He was everywhere by his rapid moving. He conquered the western world. He conquered what was known of the east. He conquered Egypt and built Alexandria. He conquered India, built an Alexandria there. From small Macedonia, they covered the earth. Right. We already know who it is. It's just fun to see all the descriptive phrases just match up perfectly. Touch not the ground. If you don't touch the ground, how fast are you traveling? Very fast. Very fast. Great speed. When the Bible wants to tell you what the fastest runner in the Bible that it identifies, it says that Asahel was light of foot. He wasn't plodding along. The empire is a leopard with four wings in another place, right there in chapter 7. Here, he touched not the ground. The Greek army moved quickly. They were disciplined. No other army moved so fast. 
It had a notable horn. We already know that the he-goat is Greece. We know that the notable horn is the first king. Between its eyes is very prominent. Greece only had one king of note. And what was his name? He's known as Alexander the Great. You can't even name another one. Philip II was not a king of Greece. He was the king of Macedonia. One city-state. Ran unto him. Darius didn't have to go looking for Alexander. Alexander crossed over from Europe at the Hellespont, or called the Dardanelles modernly, into Asia Minor and went after Darius. Ran unto him. The Persians didn't enter Greece. Greece entered Persia. Alexander had long desired to get his hands on Darius. Darius had to answer the confrontation. In the power of his fury, Alexander had no fear of battle or war. None. From his childhood. He hated the Persians from youth because all the Greek boys were bred with the idea, trained with the idea, that at some point they needed to avenge what the Greek, what the Persians had done to Greece earlier under Xerxes. He had planned revenge from his youth and the power of his fury. As soon as he had the rule, he went to war. He did not back away due to inferior numbers on any occasion. He, he came close to the ram. He crossed the Hellespont or Dardanelles. I've already said these things. It was the proverbial line in the sand to Persia. He marched on to the Granicus River where they were waiting for him. They did not have to come and get him. He went to them and he came close to the ram. And the provincial governors met him for that first battle that I've told you about. He was moved with Kohler. What is Kohler? It is quick and vehement anger and rage. Alexander had the trait in private. Did the man kill some of his best friends in angry rages? He had it in private. Did he have it in the battlefield? Absolutely. He's known for it, especially in battle. He had the trait, and he had it especially for Persians. He met the Persians. He rejected saner plans for a wise attack. Listen, they had marched all day. They got there in the afternoon. They crested a hill, saw the river, the steep bank, the Persians already at the top, on the other side waiting for them because of their scouts. Permonian, Parmenian, Parmenian, excuse me, the 60-year vet of his father, who had the left flank, said, listen, let's not fight today. The men have marched all day. Let's go upriver, cross during the night, and come down and get them tomorrow. Others said, let's sit down and plan this thing. Alexander said, mount now. Now. He saw the victory because God, by the prince of Grecia, gave him the ability to immediately calculate. This is why he's the greatest general in the history of the earth. From a worldly standpoint, he knew that cavalry on the top of a bank could not move. He had them. And he knew where the Greek mercenaries were that he did not want to fight. They were in the back. He would break the front lines and cause the Persians to run before the Greek mercenaries could ever get to him. He furiously attacked when he saw them. First battle, all battles. He smote the ram. The Persians had the steep bank. They didn't have to smite the Greeks. He smote them. Alexander attacked across the river, up the bank, and into them. He broke his two horns. Oh, there's a typo. What did the two horns of the ram represent? Look, at we're trying to be honest with the Word of God. It says he broke his two horns. Why did the ram have two horns? Because it represented the combined might of the media Persian Empire. Break his two horns. 
Persepolis, the capital, was plundered and burned. No power in the ram to stand. The Persians could not resist the Greeks. Greece's victories were easy and quick, never more than a few hours. The numbers killed of the Persians were just gargantuan. The numbers of the Greeks, very few. Granicus, Issus, Gagamela, otherwise known as Arbella, even though he got surprised by a flanking maneuver by Darius at Issus, didn't mean a thing. Much larger forces, no avail. More suitable terrain? Remember, Darius got to pick when and where in northern Iraq. Alexander met him there, no problem. No power in the ram to stand. That ram tried to buy off his closest aides, tried to hire assassins, all to no avail. You should read some of the correspondence between Darius III and Alexander. I'll give you everything west of the Euphrates. you got to look at a map. That is a decent chunk of territory. I'll give you everything of the west of the Euphrates if you'll just share it with me. Why? I own the whole thing. I'm just coming to get it. Oh, you know what Darius did? He had to excuse himself and use the boys' room. In the Bible, that's called his loins were loosed. Amen. If you feel that I'm out of place. The next letter. I'm sorry, I got it. The next letter. I'll give you my daughter. If I wanted your daughter, I wouldn't ask you. That's Alexander the Great. He cast him down to the ground. He cast him. He goat. Don't get confused. We're still in Daniel 8. He, the he goat cast the ram down to the ground. Alexander in Greece cast Darius in Persia down. He threw him down from a position of strength. They were standing. A big, beautiful ram, but he knocked him off his feet and gained the advantage over Persia. Off its war feet. A ram on the ground is easily gored, and that's just what Alexander did to the Persian Empire. He wasn't content with partial victory. He would not share power. He chased Darius at Issus until darkness stopped him. He chased Darius at Arbella until the men that were hauling him assassinated him. He looted and burned the capital of Persepolis. He stamped upon the ram. None could deliver the ram. Sparta couldn't help. Tyre couldn't help. Egypt couldn't help. We are talking about powerful nations. Could not help. Greek mercenaries couldn't help. Poor mercenaries. They got what they deserved. The he-goat waxed very great. By defeating Persia, Greece took Xerxes' empire. What was Alexander's epithet? The great. Why? Because he conquered the great king. The great king he had heard about all his life, that his father had heard about all his life, Xerxes the Persian. He had their riches, their cities, their women, their tribute. Some worshipped him as a god even while alive. The Bible says the he-goat waxed very great. But the great horn was broken. It waxed very great when he got to the pinnacle of power of the Greek empire. It was broken. What is the he-goat? It's the Greek empire. The great horn? The first king, Alexander. When strong, the horn was broken. Who's the horn? Alexander. Alexander died at the peak of the Greek empire that was very short-lived. It quickly fell into warring factions and territories of generals and other conspirators against those generals. For it came up four notable ones. The notable or great horn was replaced by four. These are the four heads of the leopard. 
Clearly, the four notable did not equal the great. Daniel later clarified that they were inferior right there in 822, but not according to his strength. Alexander's four generals were notable, but not great. Their smaller, weak kingdoms did not touch his. Toward the four winds of heaven. How many winds of heaven are there? Okay, let's guess at four. If there are four, which directions do they blow? They blow east. That's Seleucus, Syria, and Persia, all the way to Pakistan. To the south, Ptolemy. To the west, Cassander in Greece. To the north, Lysimachus in Asia Minor. Remember? Right there. Here's the west. I'm sorry. Here's the east. Here's the south. Here's the north. Daniel 8, interpreted by the angel. These are the words that Eric read. The ram which thou sawest having two horns, kings of Media Persia. The rough goat is the king of Grecia, or kingdom. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. They would not be like him. Daniel 8 interprets itself at the end. There's no reason for the Seventh-day Adventists, for the Jehovah's Witnesses, or for futurists to take Daniel and verses out of it as sound bites, or numbers out of it as numbers to calculate in modern time, because it's all fulfilled. Right. And it's been fulfilled for over 2,000 years. Amen. Daniel chapter 8. You know the time period? It was the Greek Empire. You know the little horn? It's a minor Greek ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes. I've already said that. Daniel 10. This is the angel talking to Daniel. He said, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one in twenty days. Now wait a minute. The prince of the kingdom of Persia. Who would be the most powerful person in the kingdom of Persia? The king. So a prince would just be a son stooge or somebody lesser? This prince withstood an angel. How does a human prince, not even the king, withstand an angel for three weeks? What is this thing called the prince of the kingdom of Persia? But lo, Michael, one of the chief... Oh, we're figuring it out by reading the Bible, aren't we? So what is this prince of the kingdom of Persia? It must be like Michael came to help me. So Michael is on this angel's side, and the other prince was against the angel. You mean there's a war going on? Between princes? And one of the princes' names is Michael? I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now see, the kings are mentioned, but princes are named. There was a good angel keeping the things under control in the kingdom of Persia. There was a bad angel trying to do things against the people of God in the kingdom of Persia. Michael, a prince, came and helped the angel that was on the side of Daniel's people. Do you see all this? This is a warfare going on that West Point doesn't know about. They never will. They're not smart enough because they haven't read a real war manual. Daniel 10.20 Then said he, this is the angel, Knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee? And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia. Notice it, it knows that there are kings. Do you understand, my brethren? The angel knows that there are kings in Persia that he is aiding. But there is a prince that he is opposing. 
And the prince is also used as the title for Michael, the archangel. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grisha shall come. Alexander was no prince. He was a king. But behind the king of Grisha, there was a prince of Grisha. Daniel 10. Human princes do not withstand angels at all. I hope you understand what we were just reading about. We were not reading about human princes. The princes are angels. We saw that by the terminology used. In the Bible, in the New Testament, those angels are called principalities. That's the ruler of a political subdivision. The subdivision is not a place where houses join together with a homeowner's association. A political subdivision is something smaller than a whole empire. They're called principalities. They're called powers, thrones, might, and dominion in the Bible. Think, Job, could those princes do things with the elements? Could they raise the Sabaeans? Did, did, some, did some wicked men fall on the household of Job and kill them? The Sabians? Did 185,000 get killed in one night by one of these princes being let loose by the Lord God of heaven? Did Judas Iscariot get one in him so that he went out and hung himself? Did they want Peter? Did they dispute about about the body of Moses? Is there an angelic war in heaven according to Revelation 12? Were a bunch of them cast out? Yes, okay. Satan gives power to men by God's permission. Satan told Jesus, all the kingdoms of the earth have been given to me and to whomsoever I give them. Did Jesus rebuke him and say, no, they aren't. Satan told the truth, but Satan can't do anything that God doesn't allow him to do. Revelation 13, 2, the empire that is there described by the four beasts that come together from Daniel chapter 7, it's what gave him his authority, his seat, and his great power. The dragon, the devil gave the kingdoms of the world their power. Our warfare includes these angels. Does the Bible tell us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we are to take the whole armor of God so that we can stand? Because we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but we are wrestling against principalities. Princes of political subdivisions of an unseen empire of the devil himself. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. I want you to go home from this and when you get on your knees or when you pray with your children, you will pray for God to put a hedge around your home, that the angel of the Lord will protect you and protect our nation, and that God will raise up Michaels or others like him to protect our nation from the Prince of the United States, as we prayed tonight. Daniel 10. The Prince of Grisha is Alexander's angel, the Greek angel, a wicked angel, a fallen angel, that fought against God's angels. Alexander was given dominion by God, allowing these angels to propel him to do things that he naturally could not have done, to have a personality that caused men to adore him, whether they were soldiers or enemies. He had the devilish traits from them of anger and murder. Murder, brutality, sodomy, and etc. were common among the Greeks. Let's go to the next chapter. I'm glad I can't see the clock. I'm glad you can't see it. Just we're, let's see what I don't know what number slide I'm on. I have no idea where I am. But we're we're all the way to Daniel 11, Ezekiel 26, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 10. Now Daniel 11. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel. 
The last three chapters of Daniel are one long vision. Daniel 10, 11, and 12. I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days. Now, brethren, latter days was not written by Jimmy Swaggart or Benny Hinn. Latter days was spoken by an angel to Daniel in about 500 B.C. The latter days are the latter days of the nation of Israel. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. When God tells me the starting point, right here, one, let's call this A. I love to go from A to B. He tells me the starting point of three chapters that confuse the whole world. Hardly anyone knows what I'm about to tell you. And I've told you before, it's by the grace of God. The starting point is Cyrus the Persian. The end point is when the people of Daniel, the holy people, Israel, would be scattered. Everything in Daniel 10, 11, and 12 is between 500 B.C. and 70 A.D., and you can follow it king by king by king to 70 A.D. It covers from Cyrus to 70 A.D. Thank you, Lord. Verse 2, Behold, let me tell you now, let's get started, Daniel. There shall stand up yet three kings in Persia. Okay, Cyrus was there, so there's going to be another king after Cyrus, then another, then a fourth. The fourth shall be far richer than they all. That's the richest Persian king ever. Everyone should know it, who's just read one page of Persian history. Xerxes. And by his strength... Through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia. No other king has even raised half the army of Xerxes, five million. Now, I've already told you this, but this is chapter 11. A great king measured for the fourth king after Cyrus. Precious. It's so simple. While the Persians are in power, what king raised up the whole known world against Greece? Xerxes, you're probably reading ahead and faster than I'm talking. What did he do? He raised a great army and navy against Greece that eventually brought revenge against the Persians. This is Daniel 11, 2. Verse 3. A mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. After Xerxes. After Xerxes, who stood up that hadn't been standing with great dominion? Who is this mighty king? It's Alexander, of course. Did he rule with great dominion? Try 239. His rule will extend over the whole earth. Try 76. Dominion was given to him. Did he do according to his will? What did he not do that he wanted to do? Verse 4, when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken. When he gets to a full erect position of the strength of his kingdom, his kingdom shall be broken. It shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven and not to his posterity. This is the word of God a hundred years before he was born. Nor according to his dominion, which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up. It would not be transferred. It would be fought over and ripped up and plucked up by jealous generals who would fight each other for the next 150 years. Till the Romans brought some peace to the area. 
even for others beside those. His posterity didn't get it, and his four generals didn't keep it. It went back and forth. He reached the top. His kingdom was broken. How were the Greeks broken? Alexander died. As soon as he died, the cohesiveness of his power and charisma and the loyalty of his subjects, his enemies, and his soldiers to him blew up. Was his rule divided four ways? Yes. Weren't there four heads in 7-6? Didn't it say four winds here? Didn't it tell us there would be four little horns? Did his two sons get it? No. What about their mothers? Alexander's wives? Nope. What about his mother, Olympia? Nope. What about his half-brother, Philip III, the same age? Surely he would have taken the kingdom. Oh, they tried to make him king for just a little while. His generals fought for it and divided it, but they never had the dominion he had. Now, if you were to keep reading in Daniel chapter 11, the very next verse says, and the king of the south. And all of a sudden, people get terribly confused. So they they turn on Jack Van Empey, and there's Rexella crooning to her husband, Oh, Jack, you're so smart. Let's look at a globe, Jack, and see if we can figure out Daniel 11.5 and the king of the south. And so they take a string out and they put it on the South Pole and then they put it on Jerusalem and they look down through there and, oh, there's Saudi Arabia. Oh, it's Islam. Jack, you're so smart. How many of you have watched Rexella? Oh, that was all wasted. Those of you who've watched, it's unbelievable. The king of the north and the king of the south. The people and the time frame have been given. It is about the Jews up to their scattering. Remember this verse? Remember this verse? Remember A? Remember B? We make sure that the prophecy is in between A and B. King of the north, the Seleucid kings that were north of the only place on earth that mattered to the God of heaven. Its name? Jerusalem. The temple of the great God was there, not yet thrown down. The church of God gathered in it, the church of the Old Testament. That is why everything is centered around Jerusalem through the Old Testament. The kings of the north are the Seleucid kings. Antiochus, one, two, three, four, and so forth. The south had Egypt the Ptolemies, all the way to Cleopatra. Israel, the church, was between these two warring factions of the broken, fragmented Greek empire, thus the details. That's why there is nothing in the Bible about the Mongols, nothing in the Bible about the Chinese, nothing in the Bible about the Americans, nothing in the Bible about the Europeans, because they don't matter. No antichrists or anything even close here in Daniel 11. Remember, Seleucus has this territory. Let's make a big red dot right there. And that is Jerusalem. The south is Ptolemy and Egypt coming up. The Greeks coming down from Syria, battle back and forth. The king of the north against the king of the south. The king of the south against the king of the north. These are called the Seleucid Ptolemaic battles for 150 years. Alexander the Great in the Bible. 
Daniel 2.39, the third kingdom with worldwide rule on Nebuchadnezzar's image. 7.6, a leopard with four wings for speed and four heads for its fragmentation. Daniel 8, he goat that stomped on ram. We're told what it was. Greece defeating Persia. 10.20, a prince of Grecia would come. The devilish power that would raise up the Macedonians to defeat the Persians. And then God would send the angel of the Lord to cut Alexander the Great off in one night at 32 years and eight months. Daniel 11.3, a mighty king with great dominion. Ezekiel 26, what he did to the proud, arrogant city of Tyre. This is Alexander the Great in the Bible. What makes it special? Well, the prophecies were written a 100 years before Alexander or the Greek Empire was born. Fulfilled prophecy proves the inspiration of your Bible. Fulfilled prophecy proves our God is sovereign. It denies the futurists their fantasies. And it saves you from the Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses. That's what makes it special. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. What should I think as I go home tonight? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. As Handel wrote and had others sing, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The world's greatest was dead at 32. Life is vain and vexing unless we have a hope that is far beyond the tinsel of this life. His money, his women, his loyal soldiers, his Bucephalus, none of them could help him He died and could not draw the next breath and went straight to hell. Alexander, the loser. Your king rules from heaven to hell forever. The Lord Jesus Christ, about six foot, or whatever a man should be in height, sitting at the right hand of God glorified, riding a white horse dripping with the blood of his enemies, a name on his thigh, the word of God, called faithful and true, the opposite of Alexander. You are a king yourself and a brother of the king. Can you believe it? Do you know what kind of a horse the Lord puts you on in Revelation 19? White horses, just like him. You just happen to be behind him. Isn't that where you want to be? I want to be behind him when it's to battle time. You understand Bible passages that most do not. Alexander is lost. He's in hell. He has no family. He has nothing. Where will you go with the rest of your life? And when your life ends, if it's tonight 